Amen. Awesome. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. You got an extra hour of sleep. Come on now. Good morning, church. Good morning. Yeah, that's what I'm talking. So greetings from the trop- subtropical land of Northern Virginia, where it was 80 degrees two days ago. <sighs> See, that just like, man, like, so, so I was coming to Minnesota, I'm looking for snow, I didn't catch the snow I was really hoping to see, but I heard that you get a little bit later on this season, but um, it's a joy to be here, um, it's a, uh, an honor, um, I'm just so excited to, to share uh, the word that the Lord has, has put on my heart this morning, and, and so Greg tells me that y'all are a little bit of an edgy crowd, oh yeah, yeah? You got that going on? So, so today I'm going to, I hope this to be a dialogue here. I, I want to play off that. I don't want just talking head up here, but, but there's this participation. So, so when I say, what, what? What, what? Let's do it one more time. What, what? What, what? So we are in this conversation together today. I love it. I'm liking this. Um, we're in this conversation today about this, this thing this thing called failure. Ugh. Ugh. We don't like to talk about failure. It's, it's the other F word that we're really, really afraid of in our lives, right? It's a really, really scary concept that we don't talk about much in church, honestly, that, that it's usually something in society that we look down upon. And so we're going to unpack this today with a little bit of a kingdom perspective. So, um, but I want to start out by just sharing a little bit of a story and kind of set the stage, set the meal for us as, as we, um, we head into that direction today. And so um, besides being a, a pastor and a church planter in Northern Virginia, um, when I have free time, I spend it running. I'm a big time runner, run like 5Ks, ultra marathons, all sorts of crazy events like that. Um, I, I like to draw I like to draw cartoons when I get a chance, ever since I was like, hey, yay, hi. Grew up in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church has those like kneelers that, that make great little cushions when you're about like this high to like sit and draw during the service. That's what I used to do. Um, but I also, I'm kind of an outdoor enthusiast too. And I enjoy hiking, um, being outside, going to different places. And about three years ago, I had the opportunity to head out west. So I'm on the east coast in Virginia, head out west to Colorado. Colorado. Do we have any Coloradoans in the house? Can I get a what, what? Well, what? Okay, we got you. So you're the only ones that I know that wear your state flag on like t-shirts and like hats. I've yet to see a Virginia or a Minnesota state flag on any kind of items. Um, So I had a chance to go to Colorado, spend some time away, go hiking, uh, visit a friend of mine that was living out there working in a conference center and um, really enjoyable time, kind of spiritual retreat as well. And um, my friend Dustin, um, who works out there, he's telling me a bunch of different things to see. So I saw Pikes Peak and went on some of these hiking routes. And one of the things that he told me about were these animals that were called bighorn sheep. Bighorn sheep. I don't know if you've ever seen a bighorn sheep. I hadn't at that point. And he told me that if I hiked long enough and if I was on the property that, of this conference center, that I probably would have come across these sheep. So the whole time I was there... I was looking for sheep. I was on a mission uh, to find sheep. And lo and behold, by the fourth day out of five, I had not seen a single one. 
So disappointing. Um, and so the morning I was supposed to leave, I was supposed to fly out later that um, afternoon. The, that morning, Dustin's like, okay, I'm going to take you to the spot that I usually, when I go hiking, I see a lot of sheep at. So the two of us, like, we get on, get our packs on, go out on this hike. I kid you not, we were kind of going up the mountain and then down, and then we were down into this canyon area that there were some sections of trail that we would take steps out onto these boards, literally, that there was a 50-foot drop if you took a wrong step. But not only that, I would step out on a board and Dustin would say, well, wait, stop, because I don't think that board can hold both of our weight at the same time. Makes you really feel comfortable, right? And, and so we're going along and I'm looking, where are the sheep, where are the sheep? And, and we came to this one stretch, just kind of took a, took a stop, took a drink of water. And at that point was when I looked up and I saw something move. I saw something leap, except it was not a sheep. It was the thing that eats the sheep, the mountain lion. I don't know if you know anything about mountain lions. I've discovered this post fact, but that um, mountain lions, two things, um, usually by the time that you notice they're following you, they've been following you for about a couple miles. And the second thing is by the time that you notice they're following you, it's probably too late. And we paused there. I remember like every uh, hair on my body just like stood up. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. It's the weirdest thing. I'm like, Dustin, I saw a mountain lion leap. It's up there. So he picks up a stick, tries to make himself look big. Note to self, I guess that's what you do. And we stood there for a brief uh, couple minutes and decided at that point we'd better backtrack. And we probably got back to the conference center about half the time it took us to get out there, even with all the boards and everything. But what's interesting about that time was I didn't get to see a mountain goat, um, a sheep on that trip at all. Want, want, you know, kind of sad, sad story there. But, but the thing was, every single hike after that, even when I headed back to like the safe land of like Virginia, you know, I would swear I saw a mountain lion. Every little bush that moved, there was the wind would blow, be like, mountain lion, like, oh my gosh, stick, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready, I'm getting ready. Uh, the next time I was out in Colorado, just uh, a couple months back around Labor Day, I was hiking a bunch of the 14ers and 14,000 foot mountains, and um, I was by myself, and every single, I had like, I was so scared the whole time, because I'm like, the mountain lion's going to get me this time, they didn't get me last time, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see it, I'm going to look, I'm going to look, I'm going to look. Well, when it comes to failure, failure is the lion we don't want to see on our path. That in life, we're out looking for sheep. And he's the last thing that we desire to encounter. And it's interesting because the very same way, the next time we go out, we swear that we see him in the bushes, whether he's there or not. And it can be enough to freeze you. It could be enough to challenge you. And, and I know in this room, we have so many different versions and stories of failure, right? Uh, for me, um, just a couple of things in my own life. Um, I went to medical school for a year and didn't fail out, but quit because it, it just wasn't me. It wasn't my calling. But I stepped out of that and I felt like a complete failure. And then to make matters worse, Moved back home, 
don't know if you've ever done that before. You know, you're like, well, okay, back mom and dad, that kind of thing. And moved back home and then could not get a stinking job for like five months. Like, and I'm talking any job. Like McDonald's job, like um, waiting table. I could not land a job. And I'm like, I'm a college graduate. Like, what's going on here? Like, I should be able to land. Total failure. Um, toxic relationship. I don't know if anybody's ever been in one. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one. But um, I've been in a toxic relationship. And after a while, uh, stepping out of that and saying, I just wasted that time. I wasted those years. What a failure. I just failed at relationships. That, that I know we all have different stories, but we all kind of have the same reaction. And that is just like in, we're facing a real mountain lion, is that we usually do one of two things. We either run away, I don't want to face that again, you know, I'm going to get as far away from that as I can, don't want to face it, don't want to see it. We run away or we freeze and we dwell in it. And those tapes, you can replay them over and over and over. If they were a cassette, the little thing would break off the side of it, that you go through that motion over and over. And some of us do the bo both of those things at the same time. See, the biggest thing that failure does, though, is to threaten to end the path, threaten to end the journey. So I want you to think for a second. Have, have you ever decided not to do something because you were afraid you would fail? You ever decided not to even take that step? Well, statistics and psychology tell us that you're not alone in that. We're not alone because there's actually a cultural fear of failure going on right now in our society. There's a cultural fear of failure that it's even been said that failure is our culture's unforgivable sin. That regardless of whether your failure was, was one of, of sin, that the, the Greek word hamartia, that, that's translated sin, it literally means missing the mark. It was, a, it was a, an archer's term, missing the mark. That whether it was a sinful thing or just this vague feeling of not meeting up to a standard, that, that in our society, that failures are culture's unforgivable sin. There's a phobia that's named for it, kakorahathiophobia to the point that it's debilitating, it paralyzes you. Um, statistics, so Forbes magazine, um, talk about business people, they say that 41% of millennials, their biggest obstacle to being an entrepreneur is a fear of failure. 41% up from 24% just 16 years ago. Uh, if you're a teacher, or if you work with kids in some way. Um, psychology today tells us that fear of failure is actually a childhood epidemic that's going on. And you might notice this because kids tend to refuse to take part in any activity they possibly could fail in. They only stick to what they call the, psychologists call the safety zone, the things that they know that they won't fail at, but things that never really push them to their full potential and to use their, their gifts and talents. And so all these things taken into consideration, you know, we're told, the world tells us time and time again that failure is the unforgivable sin, the F word we don't want to talk about, we don't want to admit that is a part of our lives. But what if I told you there's another side to failure? What if I told you there's another side that's different than the world's perception? What if it's a place of transformation? That a friend of mine, J.R. Briggs, who's written a whole book on failure, um, and he's a friend of mine, a pastor in Philadelphia area, he, he says this, that he says, failure will define us, 
refine us or redefine us, but it will never leave us the same. So the question is, what makes the difference? What makes the difference whether it defines, refines, or redefines us? That how can our failures and inadequacies be seen not as the negative column of our lives, but the things that God can actually use to advance the kingdom and us towards his purposes? How is that possible? Well, I gave you our usual two reactions or responses to failure, the one to get up and run, Uh, to get away as far as you can, or to freeze and kind of dwell and replay. But the thing is, Jesus offers us a third way of facing failure. And the way he does that is he completely redraws it. He redraws the entire thing. And that's what we're going to unpack today as we talk about how Jesus redraws failure. And I hope that this, for some of us, it just might be a switch in our brains that goes off, that we see things in a different perspective, a different way. Um, so if we start off with the disciples, you know, I, I have to say, I love the disciples. When I read the Gospels, don't you just see yourself or like, that's me, I did that, that's my story, I'm a part of this whole thing, that, that the disciples, it's interesting because these are guys who didn't make the cut, meaning academically, um, boys were educated up till age 12 in the first century, in the, and, and, and so those, only those who were the best and the brightest would go on to further education. The rest would just go to apprentice their parents and go and go into those, these different professions, different vocations. And, and it's interesting because in the workplace is where Jesus meets all the disciples. He finds that these are guys that did not make the cut to follow a rabbi, to go on to formal discipleship, but yet he calls them anyway. But then we see later on in the story, they fail a lot. That they can't cast out demons. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. They doubt him. They keep going on. They do that for three whole years. And then even, even so Jesus is tried and, and crucified. And then he's buried. He's put into the tomb. Well, there's nobody at the tomb. There's no countdown clock of ball dropping down at the tomb. There's nobody there. There's no crowd saying, five, four, three. There's nobody waiting for Jesus to pop out of the tomb. And then the women, the next day, the women go to the tomb. They're not bringing breakfast. They're bringing anointing items, to anointing oils, because they're expecting a body. Failure at its finest. But there's one disciple I think that stands out the most, and his name is Peter. That Peter, um, sometimes we characterize Peter as a leader, as Rocky, you know, Adrian. No, not that kind of Rocky, but that he's called the Rock. You know, that he's the, the, the person that on which the church, his statement of Jesus as Lord is the statement on which the church is built. He's the star disciple. He's the preacher. He's the miracle worker in Acts. He does all this stuff. But before that, we know Peter best for his failure. That he says, oh, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. And then it, it actually happens. And, and he's known best for that time. It's just like if I gave you the name Franz, Franz Berliner. I don't know if that rings a bell. But if I say the word Hindenburg, you probably can connect it to. He was the captain of the Hindenburg, known for his finest failure. Um, what if I say the name Gary Anderson? And then 1998... Vikings National Championship, right? The one field goal he missed, like known for that. How horrible is that? Well, that's Peter. But I want to back up in Peter's story. 
We visited his, the story of his first failure three years earlier, that right out of the gate, um, uh, Peter, Peter was living in a town called Capernaum, which was also where Jesus most probably was living at the time as well. And so it was likely that Peter and Jesus knew of each other at the time, but not, not very well. And so we, we look at a story in Luke 5 that takes place when Peter, a guy who didn't make the cut, so he's out fishing. Um, he's out fishing with his, his team and there's no fish to be caught that day. And they're cleaning their nets. Lo and behold, Jesus comes on the scene, borrows Peter's boat. And I'm sure Peter's like, okay, carpenter boy, go ahead, you know, go have, have some fun with that. So Peter, or Jesus goes out and teaches for a while. And then he comes back to Peter. He says, hey, I know you're cleaning your nets. And, like, go out again, go out again, go out again. And, and I imagine, it, the scripture doesn't say this, but I imagine Peter's like, okay, right, okay, yes, we'll go out and we'll do it. And he probably shrugs and, and probably mutters a bunch of things under his breath at the same time. And, but he goes out and they have this huge catch. And they come back into shore. And we see this as Peter's response. When it Luke 5 tells us, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I failed. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. So what happened though? What happened? That, I want to look at this story through the lens of failure. So like I said earlier, I like to draw different things. I'm a visual learner, so it helps me to put things into pictures. So usually we, we typically draw failure uh, like this. This is a, we're gonna start out here. So if you didn't know, that's me. Um, I'm on the road to failure in many different ways. I wear sunglasses probably on my head half of my life. Um, and so you're usually on a road somewhere, right? You're headed somewhere and that place in life is usually called success. We like success. I don't know what success looks like for you. If you drew success, you know, is it you know, the perfect family? The, the kids, their kids are going to go to Harvard and Yale. They're going to be, uh, they get the soccer scholarships or hockey scholarships. They're going all the way. I, I got the job of my dreams. I'm living in the house I always wanted. I got driving. What I, whatever success looks like for you, that you're in some direction pursuing that. In order to do that, you take steps. You take steps, you head in that direction, but then lo and behold, something happens called failure. That bam, it's in the middle. It, for Peter, it meant no fish. For Peter, it meant doubting that Jesus could, could help him in, in his fish recovery there. Um, but, but we see this event that happens, and what's interesting is that unlike any other event that happens in our lives, it impacts us more than we could imagine. And that's because who we are, we usually think of who we are as tied up into what we do. That our identity is so much in what we do. When you introduce yourself to somebody new, the last, second question besides their name is usually like, well, what do you do? Where do you work? What do you, we, there's so much of us that's invested there. And so when it comes to failure, it, failure takes this thing that you did, this verb, I failed, and it translates it into your identity, into a noun, to I am a failure. That's why it has such implications. And literally, it, it shuts down your brainwaves. It shuts down brainwaves where that's the only thing that you can see. And it becomes a dead end. 
It becomes a dead end that we get stuck, that the world tells us that's, that's the it, that's the end of the road. But then we see in the story that after Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner, I, I'm a sinful man, I'm, I'm messed up, I, I failed, we see that's when Jesus speaks truth into the scene. That's when Jesus does something, and, because Jesus always redraws dead ends. Jesus always redraws dead ends. And, and there's never a dead end when Jesus is on the scene. And so, so he takes this idea, this thing, this event of failure, and instead of it becoming a part of Peter, instead of becoming a part of you, he blocks that path. Because that's, the gospel speaks a message that your identity is not tied up in what you do. You have, by placing your faith in Christ, you've become a child of God. You've been a part of the mission that you are seen for more than that. It's, you can't earn your way to God. And so, so Jesus changes this perspective and he speaks that truth and he blocks that path of identity. And he says, don't be afraid. You notice he has to say, cast out the fear first. The fear can be our biggest enemy. Don't be afraid from now on. You will fish for people. He casts out fear and he invites Peter. He invites Peter to the next part of the path. That, that it's possible because the gospel allows the path to continue, that it does not become a dead end anymore. And, and so failure, failure just becomes a part of the path. It's no longer the dead end. It's a, something that we walk through. It doesn't end where we're going. And that's, that's how Jesus redraws it. Because for most of us, we're just like Peter. We're just like Peter. We're, we get stuck. We say, we, we admit our faults, but we get stuck there. And I think there's, just like Peter, there's a lot of people who Jesus calls. And there's a lot of people who Jesus calls. And, and some of us sitting in this room that we're being called to maybe something small. Maybe it's a failure that happened 20 years ago. Maybe it's, we've been stuck in that place when we were seven years old and that thing happened to us that, or we did something wrong, that we've been stuck there. And God, yet Jesus is calling us to these things. He's calling us to small things, to big things. God is nudging a lot of us in this room. It might be a certain calling to ministry even. It might, it might be a calling one day to be standing on this platform and to be preaching the gospel. And yet, you're holding back. You're holding back that you're shortchanging Jesus and what he's capable of doing with you. But what's interesting is that in every leadership journey, it begins with Peter's position, that we know that we believe that we don't have enough, but yet we're, we're, we're reminded that, that we don't need to focus on this little 50-foot section of the trail when there's so much up ahead. There's miles up ahead, but you're stuck in 50 feet. The gospel says that failure is not who you are. It's what you did that had consequences, that had ramifications, that there were certain things that came with it, but it's not who you are. It's part of the path. Because when you can see it like that, it becomes an opportunity. Because Jesus uses failure to redraw the rest of the path. He uses our failures. He transforms them. Uh, it's been said that failure is an awful thing to waste. To let it go to, go to waste is an awful thing. 
Um, does anybody know what, what this picture that I'm throwing up there, um, anybody know what that place is? It looks kind of foreign spacey sort of, right? Anybody, just shout it out. A any thoughts? Okay. Not, the non-clock service, somebody was like, I know that, they got it right on. Biosphere 2. So, so okay, let's flashback. Woo, okay, flashback, 1991. Remember Richard, 1991? Yeah, some of y'all weren't born, but 1991, the land of 1991. So there was this idea of creating this building to kind of, as a second biosphere, we live in the first biosphere, so second biosphere, to see um, if it would be capable of living on other planets. So basically they, they threw eight scientists into this place with all these plants and animals and food and stuff in Arizona, and um, it became a $20 million failure and that which would probably be a lot more today. Um, and it failed for multiple reasons, the main being that the eight people could not get along. Imagine that, right? That, uh, these are the days before Survivor, before Big Brother, before that. They probably could have made a whole lot more money, right? At least broke even with the, with the venture. But the failure of Biosphere 2 led to a learning opportunity. So the University of Arizona capt uh, captured this, and they use it as a lab now. But it led to a learning opportunity specifically about trees. I thought this was very interesting. The, the trees inside of Biosphere 2, they would grow super big, but then all of a sudden they would fall over. And, and the scientists, they were baffled because these were perfect conditions inside of Biosphere 2 for trees to go, right, right, grow, right? That there was everything that a tree could ever need. And so they studied this, and, and they finally came to the source of the problem. There was nothing that threatened the trees. There was no stress for the trees. There was no wind for the trees. That the stress and trauma plus wind is what causes trees to sink their roots deeper and to stand taller. So can you make that connection to us, right? That through the, the, the transformative process of failure, Failure and stress is something we don't like, but we need. Ugh. I don't like to hear that. that. That failure and stress is something we don't like, but we need, that it contributes to our health, that it focuses our energy in the right places. And this, but the second piece is that the, the wind helps us grow. It helps us mature. It helps us grow deeper roots. The, the wind is, is the same word in, in scripture that's the, the ruach, the, the, the breath, the spirit in Genesis that blows over chaos, basically, and leads to creation. That the wind, the spirit, is what blows through that upper room and anoints these disciples to preach the gospel and speak in different languages and go out and evangelize the world. That it's the same spirit that we need the spirit to help us grow, mature, and grow deeper roots. And so failure, it, it becomes an awful waste if we don't allow it to transform us if we don't allow God to use it and integrate. One of the best teachers in our lives is failure. I don't know if you've encountered this, but when I was um, in, in my year of medical school, um, you know, and I stepped out of that and was going through a real hard time, um, well, one of the things it taught me first was that I don't like blood. You can't be a doctor if you don't like blood. It doesn't work that way. It also... It helped me focus to realize, hey, I'm after making money and success in that regards, and that's why I'm doing this. 
And, and so I learned a lot about myself, but in the process I also allowed that experience, I allowed God to work through that experience to lead me on the rest of the path. That hadn't, hadn't I gone through that, I wouldn't have also then entered into a career in environmental scientist after that point of uh, being unemployed and, and working in the environmental science field. And then lo and behold, coming to a, a faith in Christ that was, trans, that was transformative in my life. And then from that point, being called into ministry and becoming a pastor and a church planter. I mean, do you see the dots that are connected here? But had I stopped right here? I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. That I, you need to allow God to use those times. That, that not only does Christ redraw our dead ends, but that he redraws the rest of the path. That nothing goes to waste with Jesus. And we see later in Peter's story, so in John 6, um, we see that a time in Jesus' ministry when the crowds are starting to dissipate, right? That the fireworks are over, the miracles, uh, not so much, and things are getting super difficult, you know. Imagine that. It becomes difficult to follow Jesus. I don't know. Somebody got that idea, right? But, but you see that, that these crowds are leaving, and there's disciples that are beginning to leave, and, and Jesus knows what's coming, the hard road that's up ahead, and he turns to his disciples, including Peter, and he says, y'all gonna go too? You guys gonna leave me too? Go, go ahead. But then Peter's response Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You, you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Something's changed in Peter. Something's changed that the guy who easily gave up before our fishing venture, he's persistent. That he's not willing to give up. That, that sometimes when we encounter failure, uh, John 15, 5 comes alive for us, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That so much of our time and our energy is so focusing and focused on what we can do, our accomplishments, our success. But when you face failure, you realize when you have nothing, you learn that you have everything that you need. And so failure as an opportunity to strengthen our faith with our, in our Father, to learn about ourselves, that, that you know, we have stories of, of people like Thomas Edison, you know, who tried thousands of times before he invented the light bulb, and he found that those are ways not to do it. We have those times that form us and to shape us. And you know what the more dangerous thing is? Comfort. Comfort? Comfort does not grow you. Comfort does not shape you. Comfort does not transform you or grow your character. And, and so it's these times that Jesus sculpts us and shapes us into the people that we're called to be, into that intimate relationship. But there's something that's, I think, the most important that Jesus teaches us. And that's about the thing we're aiming for, for success. See, Jesus redraws success. You know, you think in your mind, how do you draw success? Well, uh, our success, believe it or not, is dependent upon expectations. Our own, somebody else's, your boss. There's people that passed away 20 years ago that were trying to still meet their expectations in our lives. There's expectations out there that form us from the world around us. And we don't realize how much that impacts us. So I'm going to do a, a, a short little exercise here. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to, to, a number is going to pop in your brain. 
And I want you to either like write that down or just have it stick in your brain, and then I'll ask you to turn to somebody. So the question is, uh, if looking ahead at your life, what age will you be when you die? Think of the first number, don't, first reaction that pops in your brain. Now turn to somebody and tell them that number. Okay, so how many, how many people in the 60s? And raise your hand. How many folks in the 60s, if you just, whatever number. How many 70s? 70s, the first, uh, to be honest, 80s? My number was 86 when I did this the first time. Uh, 90s? 100s? Okay, y'all are more hopeful than the nine o'clock service, I have to say. So, but what's interesting is if you ask yourself what led to that number, if you explored what led to that number, you would find lots of experiences that would add up to that. For me, it was the, the age of my grandmother, the only grandmother I got to meet actually, who when she passed away, that 86 number. But what's interesting is that we can... <clears throat> That's not the final number that we need to stay, that we can stay with, because there's always an opportunity to change that number. And just as there's always an opportunity to redraw our picture of success. And so Jesus does this constantly. He constantly breaks our expectations of success. You see in in Matthew 5, um, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, literally those who are out of breath, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. What the, what on earth is going on here? See, Jesus is using this Greco-Roman writing style called Macarism, that was used by the Romans to keep people in check. And he's taking these sayings that were, that were brought to the service that things like, blessed are those who are powerful and wealthy and well-off, who can, who can be in control of others. Jesus is taking these expectations and he flips them on their head and he's saying, blessed are these people, the, the blessed, the makarios, the fortunate, lucky ducks in the midst are the people who, are the people that don't meet your expectations because they can fully experience the kingdom. And it's in the midst of what what breaks your expectations that you too can experience the fullness of the kingdom. And later, Jesus says something to the extent of, he says in Matthew 20, he says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. See, some of us have expectations, and and some of us have been been told by very well-meaning Christian people and even pastors that, hey, you're failing because you're not praying enough. You don't believe enough. Just have more faith. And um, I have an acronym for that. It's called CRAP. (laughs) So it stands for Christians Really Acting Poorly. Feel free to use it when you encounter crap in your life. But, but Jesus is saying the exact opposite here. Instead, he's saying that in the midst of these things, you can be successful because I'm changing your aim. See, the thing that we need to be aiming for in life is something that he points to in this parable that he tells in Matthew 25, where he uses this parable of the talents. And he, 
It's a time before he's going to be leaving his disciples. And he tells the story of a master with these three servants. And he gives these servants five talents, two talents and one talent. And before he goes away, he says, you know, I'm going to be back at some point. And so the talents are basically not, usually we preach about this as like our gifts. And that's a wonderful thought. But it's actually the value of multiple lifetimes worth of work. And, and so when he comes back, we see that the guy with the five talents and the guy with the two talents, they each doubled the amount that they were given. Well, the, the third guy, though, he buries his in the ground. And so the master comes back and he talks to the five and the two guys and he says the exact same thing. He says, well done, good and prosperous, lovely, powerful, awesome, no, faithful, faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. See, Jesus redraws success because success is, in his eyes is faithfulness. It's being faithful with, with what's in front of you. But yet, there's some of us that discount ourselves and we say, well, I don't have anything. Like, I'm not rich. I not, don't, not, not even smart. I feel stupid almost. Like, what do I have to offer? Well, what comes to mind is a favorite TV show of mine um, from the 80s and 90s. Um, it's, you might be familiar. <laughs> Richard Dean Anderson, right? Minnesota, name it. Yeah, yeah, just uh, awesome. I was in love with the guy when I was like eight years old. You know, I wanted to actually be the female version of him. But every episode of MacGyver, if you've ever seen the show, always ends the same that there's a predicament that's happening, there's the bad guys, they have this bomb that's ready to go off, and, and that's what happened. And, and so they're stuck in this room, and they can't do anything. But then MacGyver finds a paperclip. <laughs> and then he finds a bag of Cheetos. And then he takes the girl that he's with, he takes her hair tie. And before you know it, he puts a bomb together, and they blow out the room, save the day, end the bomb, and everybody's super happy. What if we became spiritual MacGyvers. What if you're, I don't have enough, I failed too many times, not good enough. What if you were faithful with what you have right now? What if you would pursue faithfulness above the world's success? What if whether you have a lot or a little in front of you, what if being faithful is what Jesus expects of us? And so, being faithful might look different than the world's successful. It might mean being last instead of first. It might mean losing instead of winning. It might mean looking around and, and seeing those that, that you can serve, that you're called to be a part of their lives. But, but that's good news because we serve a savior whose life looked like a complete failure. We serve a savior who was born in a little nondescript town, who lived this, this ministry with disciples that, that he walked with people that were failures. He, he met with them. He, he, he joined them in this venture. And, and so we serve, with, we serve a savior who died in the most humiliating way that anybody at his time could ever think of. And we serve a savior, though, who, who rules not from up here, but literally, he rolls from down here. And not just here, but he serves down here with stinky feet and stinky people and messes. 
He cleans them up. He redeems what's lost. He brings things back from the dead. He revives us. He speaks truth into our lives. He brings us as new creations in, in him to fulfill his purposes in the world. That's where victory is won in the midst of what the world thinks is a total failure. So what failure or fear are you stuck at right now? What is the fear of failure that's preventing you from stepping into Jesus' purpose? Can you allow Jesus to redraw it? To look at it differently? To learn to grow deeper in your faith, to experience grace, and to redefine your aim in life towards faithfulness. And so the capacity that failure has to stop us from adventure can also be what ignites us and leads us to a life in Christ. And so as we finish today, um, we're going to have the the prayer ministers that are going to be up front after the service. And I'm going to pray for us and all the stories that we share in this room. But my ultimate prayer for you is that you will fail well You will fail successfully, and you will fail forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your work in our lives and loving us in spite of us, in spite of the things that we carry, the things we can't seem to get past. Lord, help us, Lord, to see our failures not as dead ends, but in the scope of our lifetimes and eternity, there's miles and miles of road up ahead that we help us not to hyper-focus on those things, to make amends, to do right, but to put one foot in front of the other. Jesus, we thank you for redeeming us, for saving us, for loving us, for showing us that that's not the end of the story. And Lord, help us to fail well. Help us to fail successfully. Help us to fail forward. And Lord, we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.